Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. The Bowery Boys, episode 91, Haunted Tales of New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we have arrived at our third annual Halloween episode. We really struggled with the title for this one, too. We've had spooky stories. Ghost Stories of New York was our first one. Spooky Stories, which is one of our most downloaded podcasts, was a very successful one. So this is the sequel. Haunted Tales of New York. As with the prior episodes, what we will actually do is tell you four stories about New York. This will actually be real New York City history. So if you don't believe in the supernatural, that's okay because we're going to embed it in actual facts and information. However, if you do believe in the supernatural, paranormal, and you also love history, we'll be telling stories that go back as far as New Amsterdam. We'll be visiting Gaslight New York with the tale of a haunted house. And we'll go all the way up to 1980s Soho. And I'd just like to mention, you know, just to set the mood a little, Greg and I turned off the studio lights. We've got two candles lit. As a tradition, we have a very spooky-looking gourd on the table, something that looks like it could come alive. I picked that up yesterday. (laughs) And a pumpkin sitting right next to it. Tom's cat, we've garbed her in black uh, so she can (laughs) spook us out at a random interval during the recording. So we encourage you to spook yourself up a little. Put yourself in an eerie mindset. So sit a spell with us as we flip back to some haunted tales of New York City. open the door Mm. of these haunted tales. We have a little business to deal with first. As you may have noticed, uh, the past 
couple episodes. We had a month in between them because of various things that we're doing. But I just wanted to promise you that this is the first of six new episodes that you will be getting before the end of the year. So stay tuned, folks, because the fall season is upon us. Yeah, we're like a big cheesy TV network here. We're debuting our fall shows, and hopefully they won't get canceled. (laughs) Now, it's time to embark down this scary road of New York City. Now, we've told a lot of ghost stories in the past in our two prior episodes. And we usually take turns telling the stories. And who's going first here tonight, Greg? I think I think I want to. I'm, I'm dying to tell this story. This dying. is actually um, dying to tell this story. This is one of New York's most famous haunted houses. Let's be clear here. This is a haunted house, mm. haunted townhouse. Um, this house is still with us? It certainly is. And anyone listening to this right now can actually go and visit it. But the name of this story is called The Ghost of Merchant's House. Merchant's House, actually, is a little unsung museum that's actually in the East Village. It's, well, it's sort of, it's on the border of the East Village and sort of Greenwich Village proper. It's on 4th Street between the Bowery and Lafayette Street. Oh, you might be talking about NoHo? NoHo might be the more the more current nomenclature for the particular neighborhood. Um, and what it is, is actually, it's a preserved home from the mid-19th century. It is a very, it's a very charming museum. It's a, it's a little off the beaten path. What makes it so interesting, though, you've gone to museums and seen, like, recreated rooms and things like that and gone to houses that have recreated or found furniture that might have been in there. Sure, sure. Period wallpaper. Yes. What's interesting about the Merchant House is it's actually exactly as it's been since the 19th century. It's sort of been preserved in amber is one way to to look at it. And it's a rare occurrence for historians. And that's what makes it a really fascinating and unique find. As you'll find out, part of the reason that it's been so successfully preserved and the ghost story that I'm about to tell are very closely tied together. To back up, before I launch into sort of the supernatural part of the story, I'm going to start us in the year 1832. I need to kind of explain what's happening in this neighborhood at 1832, because this is actually a very fashionable neighborhood. This is a little bit outside of the city limits, but the city is rapidly moving up here, and a lot of the wealthy are moving around to this area around Washington Square Park, which is just a few blocks over. And it's expanding even further to this area, which, of course, includes Bond Street, which was one of the toniest streets of New York City in the 1830s. And this would continue creeping up to Union Square and then up Fifth Avenue. As a matter of fact, in the year that in which we're starting was the year that Samuel Ruggles was actually commissioned to redesign Union Square. Washington Square itself is very new also. And so in 1832, a successful milliner hat maker by the name of Joseph Brewster built his house right here. Another thing that makes it kind of fascinating is it's a it's federal style, but it has these Greek revival touches and because Greek revival is coming in. So this is a superb preservation of the sort of changing of fashion styles and architecture at this mm-hmm. particular time. People lived here that was their actual house, but for our intensive purposes, it's a perfect haunted house, Tom. Just think of these beautiful parlors with thick curtains and just perfectly placed furniture everywhere. Think of these long hallways with high ceilings 
creaky wooden floors as you walk on them, candelabras everywhere, large wooden cabinets that were made by notable furniture makers of the day, and these big doorways. And there's a stairway that goes up to this dark second floor. And upstairs, of course, would be these bedrooms with the sheets perfectly made as if no one's ever slept here before. Mm, Creepy. In one of these bedrooms, by the way, there's a secret passageway that goes all the way to the basement of the house. Now, three years later after it was built, the house was purchased by a merchant, an importer by the name of Seabury Treadwell. And Seabury was a very successful merchant down in the South Street Seaport area. He moved into the house with his wife, Eliza, and seven children, which really woke up this house and made, made, yeah. made it a real nice, warm place to live. Now, in the house, they would have one more child who would actually be born here. Their youngest child, her name would be Gertrude, Gertrude Treadwell, and uh, she would be born in 1840. It's the ghost of Gertrude that currently haunts the merchant house and is, in fact, the woman who responsible for us having the merchant house in such perfect preservation today. The family remained in the house for decades, even as the neighborhood itself start, started changing. As you said, everyone moved uptown. The neighborhood itself is changing. It becomes a little bit seedier. Nearby Lafayette Place, which actually had not cut through like it does today, was extended. And so that changed traffic patterns. It became a, a, a little less nice of a neighborhood. However, the Treadwells remained here. They lived here the entire time. It's not that Gertrude didn't want to leave. Like She was an attractive woman for her time. She even fell in love with a medical student by the name of Lewis Walton. Walton's only crime was that he was Catholic and that the Treadwells were Anglican. Mm. So Seabury forbade the marriage, and so she was heartbroken. As a result, it seems like she didn't really go out into society after that. In 1865, Seabury died, and throughout the years, everyone in the family died off. But Gertrude, she stayed in the house. She never got married. She lived here all the way through the 19th century and well into the 20th century. An old spinster, she kept her house in perfect exact preservation and what i'm sorry what year was gertrude born she was born in 1840 Uh so imagine this if she was she started her life here in the 1840s saw the entire 19th century then saw the first three decades of the 20th century i'd love to sit down and have a chat with gertrude and you might be able to at the time while it wasn't just her by herself she her only companion was a maid who would be dressed all in black with just a big white sash gertrude in the home always dressed in her sunday best she always looked her best head to toe in lace shawls and veils finally at age 93 in the year 1933 gertrude did pass on and she actually died here in the house in one of the upstairs bedrooms but she had really held on to this house her entire life i mean it had only been built just a few years before so she and the house were really interlinked And it seemed that even in death, she was going to make sure that the house was exactly as she wanted it. So within three years after her death, some old friends of the the Treadwells, they actually lobbied to preserve the house. So in 1936, just three years after she died, it it was turned into a museum. And it was around this time that Gertrude made her first 
post-life appearance. Mm-hmm. The very first caretaker here at the house, her name was Florence Helm. She was a very salty old lady who had grown up in Cape Cod. She would actually stay in the house, but she would also be the caretaker of it. She'd stay there overnight and whatever. But one night she's staying in the merchant's house and she's actually reading downstairs at a lamp. And it's one of those old fashioned lamps that have all the tassels around. Like the we have right here in front of us. Exactly. Except this is just a handkerchief hastily thrown onto an Ikea lamp, but I'll pretend <clears throat> that it's one of these lamps. Exactly. Please work with me. And so she's reading and all of a sudden she looks over and one single tassel is flipping back and forth really violently. None of the others are moving, only this particular one, as if someone is sitting there and just flicking it right next to her as she's reading. Oh, strange. And then abruptly it would stop. Throughout the next few days and few weeks, what Florence would hear, sometimes she would sleep over at the house, and as she was sleeping, she'd hear this rapping sound. But it wouldn't just be like a pipe or something. It would be a very rhythmic, usually in like two raps or three raps, like... Throughout the night, usually around the time when she was sleeping, and usually over the bed. Like somebody was knocking on the ceiling and, and try maybe trying to send a message or something now other caretakers who lived here after helm retired would actually confirm these stories and would hear the same kind of sounds one night um a caretaker and his wife who lived there and the sounds were so loud that the wife actually left the room she's like i just i can't sleep in this room obviously these stories filtered through new york city and this became one of new york's best known haunted houses it would attract experts in the paranormal you know ghostbusters throughout the decades throughout the 20th century and how fortunate for these paranormal experts that the house was still preserved it certainly helps that like her possessions are literally right. throughout the entire house. She has not house. moved out. There are throughout the years there are literally dozens of sightings of Gertrude. She's often seen in or near her bedroom. She's sometimes seen gliding across the floor as though her feet aren't really touching it. Sometimes she's even seen walking down the stairs wearing a gray lacy gown and you can sometimes almost see the icy blue veins. But in the contours of her ghostly face, like sometimes there's, it's that detailed, these visions. She's also been known to photograph, though I have to admit I haven't seen any of these photographs, but they claim that she has been photographed. And interestingly, because, you know, it is in NoHo, whatever, mm-hmm. it is near the East Village. So when you walk by the house, I really recommend people just sort of like put their ear up to the building because when it's closed, you know, you can walk by it. Occasionally, some have actually heard the sound of the piano that's down in the first floor, tinkling away. By itself. What's great is whether you believe in the, the ghosts of Gertrude or not, the merchant house is milking it for all it's worth, which I just, I think that's great, actually. They're, they're making it kind of fun and interesting. Oh, you have a brochure. We're recording this on October, but mm-hmm. you can go any time of the year. But in October, they have actually decorated the house inside to, so that it sort of resembles what it would look like in the mid-19th century, if you were to attend a funeral. So uh, there's all these different recreated scenes oh, throughout the house. As if this isn't creepy enough. So essentially, whether or not you personally feel that there might be a ghost, it must be a blast to at least go through the motions and pretend and to go here to the merchant house and fall victim to these mysteries and to this legend, to the legend of the ghost of merchant house. You know, Greg, it's funny because I'm going to take us now to another house that's not very far away. And really, it's about the same time period because you were on East 4th Street 
uh, East, just off of Broadway. East 4th Street. And when she died, it was in the 1930s, 1933. But it started in 1840. Yes. And so we're going to go back, actually, to 1820s. And we're going to head west to the West Village to number 12, Gay Street. This is, after all, the story of the ghosts at number 12, Gay Street. Wow, this sounds fascinating. Now, I know a little bit of something about the early history of Gay Street. Um, so I, I assume if we're starting all the way back then, and we're starting at the beginnings of the existence of Gay Street. Well, right, because you, first of all, as you know, it's funny, I was doing some research on Gay Street this morning, Greg, and I just kept coming across your blog posts on the Bowery Boys <laughs> about this very street. But Gay Street, uh, besides being one of the most photographed street signs mm-hmm. um, for sale at various photographers, for vendors uh, lining the sidewalks is a short, crooked little street that only spans one block uh, in Greenwich Village between Christopher and Waverly Place. Well, and it's most photographed because it actually creates these nice lines because there's a hook in the street and all the buildings are fairly preserved, so it creates the nice little light uh, light angles and everything. Beautiful. I took some shots of it this afternoon after lunch, in fact. Christopher and Waverly Place are both pretty busy, you know, and in the middle of the afternoon, there's a lot of traffic, but Gay Street is not nearly as busy. It hardly gets any traffic at all. Now, in the Dutch days, the land was part of Wouter van Twiller's estate, remember? Mm-hmm. Wouter. Yes. Uh, where Wouter apparently had a brewery on the spot. Yes, around the, and around the area. Right. It became later part of uh, Pete Warren's estate, uh, and he had a morgue on the land. So hmm, we've got a brewery and we have a morgue. Now in the 1820s, uh, 1826 in fact, is when Washington Square Park opened. As you just mentioned, that was a very fashionable area. And Waverly Place actually becomes Washington Square North. The streets lining Waverly Place would also be home to the city's wealthiest families and they would build these beautiful mansions. But where were they going to keep their horses? Why they built stables over on that funny little street that hooked up toward Christopher Street? Sure, because as you said, it wasn't a real thoroughfare, so um, a it nice convenient, a, a nice place to just put you know put all the unsightly things like all the horse stables, horse stables, and also their servants. In 1827, the first people moved in to some of the dwellings that were on this funny little street. Now, the house that we're talking about, a long gay street, is number twelve. It's a four-story brick townhouse with. Nice shutters and flower boxes in the window and an old-fashioned gas lamp that's hanging by the front door. Over the years, this house would be, of course, a private dwelling. Uh, It would be at some point divvied up into different apartments. Various shenanigans would go on inside, including in the 1920s when Mayor Jimmy Walker... Mm-hmm. actually owned the house. Certainly a party mayor, certainly someone who wouldn't shy away from a neighborhood that might have a lot of, say, speakeasies on the block. No, or in the house. <laughs> Jimmy Walker actually didn't live there primarily because he lived with his wife elsewhere. But here he kept his mistress, Betty Compton, a chorus girl. Oh, ooh. Now, Jimmy Walker was a snappy dressing, dapper, bon vivant. He was a larger-than-life figure, a lawyer, a musician, a politician. He guided New York through the end of uh, the Prohibition period and until 1932 when all of these various scandals, uh, sex scandals, would catch up with him and he'd be forced to resign. Yeah, he got kicked out. Right. 
The house that he kept on Gay Street during Prohibition, in fact, was home to its own little speakeasy. And in fact, down in the basement, if we went underground, you could find the Pirate's Den, one of the most notorious speakeasies in the area, where some of the most amazing parties would be thrown with lots of bootlegged booze. And these parties attracted a real who's who of politicians, starlets, personalities, and they must have been a blast because they're ghosts just won't stay away so this home is haunted by the ghosts of party goers it really does kind of sound like a fabulous film doesn't it <laughs> I mean, it's like a reunion although n interestingly greg neither walker nor compton has been spotted in the house on gay street Many of those party guests have been seen, or we will speculate that many of the ghosts who have been felt, experienced, witnessed, were party goers back in the 19 roaring 20s. Shadows are seen gliding up the stairs. People are seen appearing and vanishing inside and outside the front door. Fried onions are even smelled in the house <laughs> when nobody's <laughs> cooking. Was that a delicacy down at the speakeasy, I guess? I, mean, I think it was after the party. You know, they'd fry sure. up some well, onions and yeah, just have sure. it go. Bar food. Let's talk about some of these uninvited guests. There's a foreign diplomat who's been seen several times. He's fraught with anxieties. He's worried, and he's definitely not having a good time. He's been seen pacing back and forth. There's a pretty young woman who has been placed in the 1930s who's been seen circulating around the house. There's a younger spirit who's been sensed, who seems to stay pretty much in the first floor stairwell. There's a girl who's dressed in 1960s era clothes. Now she's been spotted sauntering on the sidewalk in front of the house. So this is Okay. A, this is a real crowd of ghosts, isn't it? Well, but, a crowd of specters. But I, but Greg, I haven't even gotten to the star attraction of the evening. An older gentleman who's dressed up in very fashionable evening wear for a party. He's heading out on, on the town. He's been seen by several subsequent owners. He's been witnessed by guests who have stayed there. They all describe the same man. And thus he's called... The Gay Street Phantom. And these have been documented. Like These are documented sites. These are in notable sources on these particular kinds of stories. Yes, and by respectable sources, Greg, including a certain Frank Paris. Now, Frank Paris was one of the tenants who would meet this kindly gentleman. Frank lived in the house in the mid-century, and he also had his puppet crafting workshop in the basement, and a puppet theater in the house. So let me get this straight. You have puppets sitting around <laughs> and you have ghosts in the hallway yeah. and in the stairwell. Yes, that's correct. Now, Frank Paris, incidentally, would later gain national acclaim as the inventor and the crafter of the Howdy Doody puppet. So this is actually kind of probably where Howdy Doody was born. Howdy Doody was born in number 12 Gay Street. Oh, so Frank actually saw this gentleman ghost. Oh, not just saw him. He heard him. He recounted that he often heard footsteps climbing and descending the staircase, climbing, descending the staircase when nobody was there. He heard pounding on the parlor walls when nobody was there. His guests often complained about the raucous tenants on the top floor who sounded like they were throwing a party during the nights. 
but of course, there was nobody there. Frank himself spotted the man several times in the stairwell, once approaching the front door, dressed for an evening out, wearing an opera cape and a top hat. And so did he see him again? I think Frank grabbed his marionettes and took <laughs> off. <laughs> I probably would. Um, um, well, you know, the, the question is, who were these ghosts? And and what did they want? They, they didn't cause any problems. I mean, they, they were somewhat irritating. It's too bad we couldn't work a ghost dating service and hook up our gentleman ghost here with Gertrude. It sounds like they... Oh, right. They, they, they would, were, they'd probably hit it off. They were just across town from each other. But and this- by the way, I went there today. I checked out the place. Anybody can walk past it. Apparently, they were trying to do some work inside and they got a stop order from the police. And so the front door is covered with the stop orders and police signs and such. And there's another sign that says, danger no floors inside. It's almost like this building is just continually hexed. Wow, Tom, thank you. So that's the ghost of Gay Street. The Phantom of Gay Street. Phantom of Gay Street. So for my next tale, we're actually going to wind the clock all the way back. We're going to go back to the beginnings of New York when it wasn't New York, when it was New Amsterdam. Oh, that's way before Howdy Doody. Way before silly puppets, we're talking about the brand new colony of New Amsterdam. And the tale that I'm about to tell you is somebody who really lived and an unfortunate mishap that he had. For this is a story not of a ghost, but of something worse than a ghost. The devil. (laughs) This is the devil and Anthony Van Corlear. So there's this area in New York, Tom, that I know you know, and I know know everyone's heard of it, though you may not exactly know where it is, called Spitendivel. Excuse me? Spitendivel. Spitendivel is actually today, it's a a small neighborhood that's part of the Bronx neighborhood of Riverdale. I'm just plain stupid. I just love to hear you say (laughs) Spitendivel. It's a great word. It's like you sound Dutch when you say it. It it forces an accent through your mouth. In particular, we're going to be talking about Spitendivel Creek. Without getting too complicated, this is essentially the small body of water at the very, very, very top of Manhattan where that where is a little panhandle, that part of the Manhattan yes. Island, where basically it links the Harlem River with the Hudson River. Now, throughout the years, they've changed the course of it and filled some in with landfill. and they've, Essentially, that's where Spite and Dival Creek is. Purposes of our story, that's where it is. Now, where this name came from, there's, a, there's three theories. One of the theories is that it means something like spouting devil or devil's mm-hmm. whirlpool because there, at certain times of the day, especially back then, the water got quite turbulent. Another theory is that it's, it's actually referring to something called a spouting meadow, which was right next to it. But that's, that has nothing to do with the devil. So we're, going to, so we're going to discard that theory. But we're going to focus here on the third theory, which is, and this is one that no less than Washington Irving himself claimed, is that it actually means in spite of the devil, in spite and devil. Mm-hmm. So why would well, why would it be named such a thing? Well, I'm about to tell you one legend that has grown around that particular name. I'm going to bring in a regular contributor to our New York history here, um, none other than Peter Stuyvesant. Old peg leg. Yes, as we know, he's brought into New Amsterdam just to whip this renegade Dutch outpost into shape. One of the things, of course, that Peter was really into was beefing up the security for New Amsterdam. Most notably, of course, building that wall along the northern end of the city in 
1653, which of course became our Wall Street. It also reflects Stuyvesant's sort of paranoia that he was going to be attacked by the English colonies, that he would increase the number of watchmen and sentries. Amongst these sentries, he also employed a trumpeter. Now, that sounds a little odd, not to play music, but to be someone who would alert people from sure. far Because, of course, there were a lot of Dutch people out in the, in the countryside and they had farms. And it would be difficult to sort of like run and get them all. So if you, you it would need be a warning trumpet, it would be a warning coronet call. Sort of like a little bit like Paul Revere. Right. These services would be used a few times. And the, the man that he hired for this particular position was named Anthony Van Corlaer. Now, one night in 1664, Stuyvesant had heard some rumors that there was going to be this huge attack by the English colonies. And they were heading down to New Amsterdam's direction. He had reason to believe that he was being attacked. So he sent Van Corlaer up the shore of the Hudson to warn everyone, to warn all the Dutch settlers that this was happening and that they needed to go to the city or that they needed to protect themselves. So he would run along with this horse, he'd blaring his trumpet to warn these settlers, rest them out of bed. And as he was doing this, a bad storm was rolling in. And so there was thunder and lightning. Now, we know that, of course, from prior stories, that the Dutch also lived up in the area of the Bronx. The name Bronx comes from a Dutch settler named Jonas Bronx, though by the time of the story he has been dead for many, many years. But there are other Dutch farmers there. So he rides all the way up to the top of Manhattan Island, and usually to get between Manhattan and that area that we would call the Bronx later, you would take a ferry. But he got up there. No and, time for ferry. Well, there's the storm, and so the ferry can't actually even cross the water. Mm. The waters are swelling, and so the ferry boats probably couldn't even make it across. But he needed to warn them. You know, he was really determined to do this. So it was a creek. It was, you know, it was a stormy, swollen creek, but he thought it might be swimmable. I'm sure that many people did actually do it without issue. So in spite of these choppy waves, in spite of the devil, as they say, he threw his horn around his neck and just jumped into the water and started swimming across the water. Now, halfway across, he could actually see where he was going to come out of, out of the water. He felt this wet, clammy hand grab his leg. It began pulling him into the water. You know, he looked down into the dark water because it was pulling him under, and he saw this large figure was coming out of the bottom of the creek. It was almost like it was the creek itself grabbing him. That's when he realized that this was the devil that was pulling him under. Some versions of the tale have the devil is in the, in the form of a giant fish. Others describe it in something that I would call like the creature from the Black Lagoon. In all versions of the tale, it's vomiting, boiling water oh. issuing out of its mouth. And it has Sounds this, horrible. this long, diabolical tail. So it's grabbing on to Anthony, pulling him in. He's fighting against it. He's even using his horn as a weapon. Then he, when he's able to plunge himself out of the water for just a second, he blows the horn to see if anyone can come rescue him. Finally, the devil lets go. Anthony's free, but he's floating in the middle of the water and he's completely exhausted. He has no energy. His arms are so weak. His legs are weak. He tries to swim to the, to the edge to get to the other side, but he's just, he can't do it. And all of a sudden the current catches him and he's just washed out into the Hudson River and he just sinks further and further out into the water and deeper and deeper and he's never seen again. However, he is heard from again 
on many, many, many occasions. Residents who have lived on the northern tip of Manhattan and on this area of where the Bronx are have reported actually hearing, especially during storms, hearing the sound of a trumpet coming out of the water, just sort of wafting over the land. No source for it at all. And it's not coming from the Columbia Marching Band at Bakerfield? It's uh, probably not, <laughs> though this would, though his horn might even be louder than that, wow. if, if accounts are to be believed. And this is from decades, from many, many decades of people telling these same kind of stories. That's really creepy. And the, you know, this has become, of course, a big folk tale now, and Washington Irving did make it popular. If you live in this area or go to visit this area, which I highly recommend, just keep one ear peeled. And by all means, email us if you've heard the trumpet. All right, Greg, I don't know how I can possibly top that creepy, creepy legend that took us back to Dutch time. So I will just jump forward a couple hundred years um, into the 1960s. Back into Soho, if that's okay with you. Sure, it sounds um, sounds a little less creepy, but I'm sure you have something up your sleeve. I have some ghosts. Ghosts at 60 Mercer. Yes, my story takes place at 60 Mercer Street, which is at the corner of Mercer and Broom Street, specifically the southeast corner. Now, you may be familiar with the gourmet garage that's on the southwest corner nothing creepy or scary about that place except for the prices except the prices of the vine ripe tomatoes but we won't go into that <laughs> across the street however you'll find 60 mercer street today it's a clothing boutique but it was built in the 1880s or 1890s as an office building, and it was thought to have been occupied by the Western Union. It's still a beautiful building. You can walk by. I encourage it. You'll see a couple steps leading into a giant room inside. At the time, not presently, but before, there was a staircase then that led up to a balcony because today it's a giant open room. It was a big open room, a huge high ceiling. A staircase led up to a balcony, off of which was a small room. Now, for decades in the middle of this century, the 1960s up until 1990s, there was a restaurant at 60 Mercer. At one point, it was a restaurant called Changes. Changes, okay. And then Breezen, which was a West Indies spot. So it went from Changes to Breezen. Breezen with Breezen like apostrophe. Apostrophe, okay. B-R-E-E-Z-I-N apostrophe. Okay, so this is where we're going to see a ghost. It seems so unlikely, I know. Back when it was Changes in the 1970s, it was a favorite haunt, if you will, for ghost spotters because it was home to at least one ghost. In fact, groups would meet there at Changes mm -hmm. for breakfast, for brunch. Lewis Harrison, um, who led a paranormal group, would regularly would hold weekly meetings, in fact, in the restaurant, during which, at one point, 11 people, that was everybody in the restaurant, saw at the same time this kind of white orb up on the balcony that was transparent, it was hovering, changes eventually closed, and the building was shuttered up. Now, Greg, here's where the story gets a little odd. Okay, because right now it's a 70s restaurant and there's a ghostly <laughs> orb that multiple people have seen at once. Right, the whole that's, dining room. So. That's certainly weird, but in the, in the ghostly spectrum of stories that we've told tonight. Well, this is a little potential backstory okay. on that white floating orb and the reason that people were going to changes in the first place. There was a folk singer very well-known folk singer who had a tragically short life 
from 1940 until 1976, and his name was Phil Oakes, O-C-H-S. Many of our listeners are probably familiar with his works. He was a folk and protest singer, sort of akin to Bob Dylan, in fact, friends with Dylan. He was probably in the Washington Square scene in the late 60s. He moved to New York in 1962. He became part of that, that whole scene. 1968 was a really rough year for him. He was performing in Chicago during the Democratic Convention. He witnessed firsthand the police brutality, cracking down on the protesters. He was totally disillusioned. Along with Vietnam, the election of Richard Nixon, he was really disillusioned and suffering from some mental disorders at the same time. Hmm. What does he have to do with this haunted restaurant now? Right. I know I know it sounds very strange, hmm. and I'm getting there in just one second, okay. but let's just say that he started to lose it. He changed his name at one point in, in 1975. He took on the identity of a certain John Butler Train and said that Train had actually murdered Oakes and that he had replaced him and he started carrying around a weapon, you know. It sounds like a disturbed individual. So the legend, at least as I I read in the book Haunted Houses USA by Dolores Riccio and Joan Bingham, it is purported that Oakes decided to buy this restaurant. He had had it with singing. He was reinventing himself as a restaurateur, bought the restaurant uh, with money that he made from his music, only to find that he had more problems. In April of 1976, he climbed the balcony, entered a room adjacent to the dining room, and hanged himself. And his ghost is what's still haunting that space today. But I think we would have heard that. I don't know. Is that exactly how it really happened? Well, and this is, you know, this is the stuff of legend, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, inconveniently for this legend, there is an obituary for for Oaks, and there is quite a bit known about his death, and he did hang himself in 1976, although it was at his sister's house in Far Rockaway. All right, so it was in the city, but it wasn't in this place that was purportedly his restaurant. Apparently, he had lots of people in the mid-70s and 80s whipped up about his ghost hanging out. Now, we don't know, maybe it wasn't his ghost. However, we do know that in the 80s, changes became Breezen, mm-hmm. the West Indies restaurant, and Joel Honig, who is another paranormal expert, would bring his friends, and he visited the Breezen in the 1980s um, and examined the rooms himself, and he didn't find anything strange about the upstairs room or the balcony, but he found the staircase leading up to it and the basement extremely, quote, charged. Was it his ghost? Was it another ghost? Was it a ghost of somebody from the Western Union? Was it something that predated the construction of that building entirely? Perhaps Oaks bought a haunted building, and that may have been one of the things that sort of sent him over the edge. Well, I think that our listeners will just have to swing by the corner of Mercer and Broom for themselves and check it out and see if you feel any ghostly presence. Unfortunately, they've taken away the balcony and the upstairs, where they've covered up the adjacent room. There is no internal staircase. But there is a big room full of boutique clothing. (laughs) Well, if you don't see a ghost there, we have given you ample other locations for some potential spook sightings. I hope that you have enjoyed our third annual Ghost Fest here on the Bowery Boys with a little history swirled in with some legend. Uh, Visit our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com for a lot of different stories on New York City history and 
some photos, though I'm not sure if I'll be able to find some photos of of Gertrude and and Anthony and all these party guests, but uh, I'll do what I can. This is the first of six brand new episodes for the remainder of 2009, so there will be a solo show in two weeks. And thank you to those who have sent in your suggestions for upcoming show ideas. We've really appreciated those. You can also join us at our Facebook page. If you just type in Bowery Boys on Facebook, you'll find us. And we really uh, appreciate all the comments on there as well. That's a really fun resource to have. And so we really appreciate your contributions there as well. So thank you for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta.